the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. Hope you're having a great day. Aubrey, something you and I have talked about before, but I see growing in our culture right now is, and it's probably just our, no, not just, but where you see it primarily is on social media. And that is uh, people who are very Mm pro-vaccine, people who are very, um, like, militant. Like, how could you not? Yes. Uh, almost feeling like um, they are reveling in the death of those people who maybe were very anti-vaccine. So I have seen see that, that too. Yes, right, and it, that always makes me feel. Now we've shared before. You and I are both vaccinated, yes. but that makes me feel angry and kind of dirty and mm-hmm. kind of what's wrong with us, you know? And it brings up this idea of empathy. And David French at his great blog called The French Press talks about the American crisis of selective empathy. Wow. So let's first do a little bit of definitions here, yeah. some definition work. How would you define empathy versus sympathy? This is how I've always understood it. And you can correct me, Brian, if you have a different understanding. But sympathy is you feel sorry for someone. Mm-hmm. Empathy is you actually try to put yourself in their shoes so you understand what it is they're feeling And empathy, in a sense, breeds compassion for that person, Mm. even if you um, feel differently. You got that really right. Really? I'm I'm reading from Psych. I am an author. I'm reading from PsychMC.com, which sounds like an awesome site. (laughs) MC (laughs) Psych. It says, sympathy involves understanding from your own perspective. Empathy involves putting yourself in the other person's shoes and understanding why they may have these particular feelings. So to say sympathy, in this case of what we're talking about, people who uh, say they refuse the vaccine and mm-hmm. they end up dying from COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, people in that situation, sympathy would be, oh, I'm really sad That's that they so died. That's terrible that happened. That's yeah. too bad. Empathy would be, I'm sad that they died. And let me try to figure, let me try to understand why they chose yes. not to get vaccinated right. or why they chose. And that's where French here is saying We're not doing that very well as a Mm. culture. He's from Tennessee, which is currently number one in COVID. Yes. um, Infections, death, everything. Um, He's in Tennessee. We've talked to David many times on this show, and we know kind of his love for his area and his frustration by this. And he talks about this idea of empathy. Let me just read a very short portion of what he says. You can go to frenchpress.thedispatch.com and read this very long blog post. He says... The answer is that America is experiencing an empathy crisis, but it's not quite the crisis you might think. Our empathy can overflow for the people we love, for the people within our tribe, even when they make grave errors. But what about our empathy for, quote, them, the people we distrust? Then empathy is in short supply. Indeed, in some cases, the very concept of empathy is under fire. You may not know this, but empathy is under fire even within the church itself. Parts of American Christianity are in a fight over the idea of empathy, and the outcome of that dispute will resonate beyond the borders 
of evangelical belief. What do you think about what David French had to write I there? I mean, I think his finger is on the pulse of what's happening in the church right now, and I actually think we're going to see in the next few years some major church splits, maybe even denominational splits, because there's a f- group of people who feel like it is our Christian duty to practice empathy, and there's a group of mm. people who feel like, no, it is our Christian duty to practice my rights. Mm. And I, I feel like the future of the church is really dependent on whether or not we can begin, again, in our diversity, in our disagreements, can we begin to practice empathy, really seeing each other with a God's eye view and move forward in unity, even as we disagree? It's it's really going to be a test of the church over the next decade. I believe that, too. I do, too, because uh, we as Christians are called to be, uh, David French goes on to talk about, well, do we just excuse sin? No, but we can right. be empathetic in this, he closes this out by saying this, nothing about this concept requires rationalizing or excusing acts that are truly wrong. Did Christ rationalize or excuse sin? But empathy ultimately doesn't pontificate, it participates. It participates in your neighbor's life, and it doesn't condition your participation on your neighbor's perfection. Mm. In short, don't wait for a person to be right before you dive into their life with sacrificial mm, love. That's beautiful. a beautiful thing. Yeah. That Jesus modeled. That's right. right. Jesus uh, himself, it says he he dined with sinners and prostitutes and the ill repute. Uh, he never would sweat, well, you know what? When that when that sinner stops sinning, we should all be really... I'll hang out with them. Yes, yeah. we should all be really thankful for that. Aubrey, what is the result? If David French is right that we have a crisis of selective empathy, mm-hmm. that we're not good at being empathetic with those people we don't agree with yeah. who are not part of our tribe, if the Christ follower lives that way, yes. what's the result going to be? I, you know, I think part of the result is our witness, mm-hmm. the way that the world sees Christianity. Oh, you are just bitter and divisive and hateful, and we're supposed to be defined by our love. They will know us by our love. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the call for the Christian Um, So I think that's part of the effect. And then as we all know, bitterness and hostility is from the enemy. That is not from the Lord. Like he has, he has brought the dividing wall down and Mm. made people who are different one. So really we're allowing the enemy to take root in our church, in our personal lives, in our relationships. And that can only lead to death, to heartache, Mm. to brokenness. It will not lead to life. That's good. And the, the, the flip side, the positive side is also true. That as we live with empathy, we do not live in a culture that is empathetic. That's why David talks about the American crisis of selective empathy. Yeah. When when I can show empathy and love for the people who don't share my faith, mm-hmm. the people who don't share my politics, mm-hmm. the people who don't share my view on the vaccine mm-hmm. or masks or name your name your issue, right. name your hot right. button issue, right. name your theological hot button issue. Right. When I show an ability to show empathy and love for my neighbor, sounds biblical to me, I think it's going to, we all say we want to be lights in the darkness. We mm. want to stand out. We want people to know Jesus by how we live our lives. Well, then start living like Jesus. That's it. Yeah. And good, I right. think we have to take that really seriously. So what's one step towards empathy? What is somebody out there? They're going, I'm not an empathetic yeah. person at all. I have a lot of hatred. I have a lot of yeah. anger in my life. What's one step towards empathy? I mean, I always think a step towards empathy is relationship. You have to get to actually know the people you're struggling to uh, feel empathy for because relationship solves a whole bunch of that stuff. Proximity solves 
solves a whole bunch of that stuff. And then I think remember how much you've been forgiven mm-hmm. in Christ, the empathy God has shown us. And so just keep bringing it back to the Lord. Lord, transform my heart. And then I think lastly, just be aware of when you're feeling triggered and emotional, you're not empathetic and just go, oh, okay. There's an invitation here. God, what are you showing me? Mm, yeah. Bring it to the Lord and ask him to show you where you could grow in empathy before you respond without it. Yeah. that Use that as an opportunity to pray, not post. Ooh, that works. Ooh, hey. Pray, not post. That, that works right there. Well, coming up next, Aubrey and I are excited to be joined by Nathan White. He is the Director of External Engagement at World Relief Chicagoland. He's going to talk to us about what World Relief is helping to do for refugees from Afghanistan and around the world, and then what can we as individuals and as the church, how can we partner with them to help people who are greatly in need? We're going to have that conversation with Nathan White next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us. And Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by Nathan White. Nathan is the Director of External Engagement at World Relief Chicagoland. Uh, and we've got all sorts of things to talk to Nathan about. Nathan, how are you doing today? Thanks for joining us. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's absolutely our pleasure. Nathan, we've had, as we were telling you off air, we've had Matthew Sorens on a bunch of times to talk about World Relief and what they're doing specifically now with uh, with uh, all that's going on in Afghanistan. But why don't you help our people know what are some ways that World Relief is helping refugees right now from Afghanistan? Certainly. Well, World Relief nationally, you know, we have um, been told that the U.S. will receive as many as 70,000. Um, Afghans coming in the next few months, and World Relief, as one of nine resettlement organizations, committed to uh, between seven and ten thousand of those. And we are going to be doing all of the holistic resettlement work that we typically do. So that's helping people find housing, helping people get a job. Um, but it starts even before that, where we find out someone's coming, we go get an apartment, we fill the apartment with the essentials that they need, and then we pick them up from the airport. Um, and a lot of those services just to help people get the initial stability they need once they've arrived here in a new country. Mm. Um, to be a welcoming face at the airport is huge. Yeah. Um, but then to go with them every step beyond that until they're fully integrated. That's fantastic. And Nathan, you know, we talked off air. Brian and I are pastors. Your wife is a pastor. Lots of churches in the Chicagoland wondering how they can get involved and help support refugees in the Chicago area. You have any practical handholds for us? Yeah, certainly. Some of the most significant ones, of course, big picture, are prayer and advocacy. Um, But one of the things that we really will need is partners in a financial way. Mm. You know, this is going to be a a long-term process, and many of the Afghans who are coming are coming as humanitarian parolees. Mm. And part of what that means is that they don't have the same access um, or level of support from government services as um, typical refugees, but um, we'll really be relying on churches and um, individuals in the community to rally around them. And World Relief will need to rely on those partnerships in a way that we, we haven't ever uh, needed to at a level, at a high level before. Yeah. Um, and additionally, you know, we have some churches that are um, collecting what we call welcome kits and getting some of those household items together. And we're so incredibly grateful and thankful um, for all of the support that's been poured out. Um, but we know that we're going to continue to need those things going into the fall and even into the winter and the spring yeah. to help families get on their feet 
uh, with their housing. Yeah, and Nathan, let's go back just a little bit. When when somebody comes, when a refugee arrives in the United States from Afghanistan, uh, somebody that you guys are going to help, what happens next? Like, what do you guys actually do? Yeah, so when they arrive, you know, we partner with them, we secure their housing, and then we come alongside of them and provide um, the essentials, like finding, helping them find a job. You know, we hope within the first three months we can get them into a job that will have family-sustaining support mm. um, where they can begin to pay their own rent and um, get connected in that way. We also try to connect them with English as a second language class um, just to really help them know how to engage in a grocery store or mm. small everyday components, you know, talking to their teacher, uh, their students' teachers at school and knowing what the conversation was about. These are vital things that are needed um, really in those first few months. And then we'll walk with them beyond that to, um, you know, help them find the different things that they need in terms of healthcare services, maybe mental health care services, really trying to care for the whole person. I love that. Nathan, you know, when we look at the refugee situation, especially refugees coming from Afghanistan right now, I think an initial reaction can be, wow, this is so overwhelming. I don't even know what to do. I wonder if you could just tell us maybe a story or two of how you've seen God at work through world relief in the lives of refugees. Yeah, certainly. Um, there's one that comes to mind, which is one I enjoy. It's actually a story from a few years ago, but it keeps coming back to mind for me. And I think the Lord keeps putting it there as a vision of what could happen in the future. So there's a family who actually came from Afghanistan about five years ago. Um, and had an eight-year-old daughter who we'll, we'll call Sarah, but we won't say her name for safety reasons. But she um, really wanted to learn, right? And she got connected. We helped them find housing and all of those different things. But she got connected with our children and youth services, and they tutored with her for, um, you know, as, as often as she would request it, which is every year coming up on five years. And that led to her applying to college prep schools and she grew so much, you know, having coming in, not knowing the language very well. Um, she was able to apply to multiple college prep schools across the nation and was accepted to everyone that she had. Wow, that's well. amazing. And it's just this really neat story of the beauty and the potential of a person created in the image of God to be put in an environment where even though they've endured some trauma, they're able to grow and see this beautiful redemption story of someone that one day is probably going to be an exceptional leader. Um, So it's exciting to to see that. And I just keep coming back to it, imagining Mm -hmm. in the midst of this hard time we are in right now, like so many people are suffering the trauma of having to leave their homes, maybe with with nothing except the minimal documents they need to come. But we can imagine like God in the years ahead will continue to do these cool moments of redemption, these moments of healing and restoration that could lead to seeing um, just some incredible, incredible things happen in the lives of people. Yeah, yeah. And, and Nathan, a lot of people, obviously, for, for good reasons, are very focused on Afghanistan. But what are some of the other primary countries uh, where you guys see refugees coming from, where World Relief is doing their primary amounts of work? Yeah, so I can't speak for the whole network, but mm-hmm. I know here in the Chicagoland area, um, we've seen people coming still from Syria, from Sudan. Um, Syria and Sudan are two that are um, significant areas right now. Wow, that's so incredible to hear. And then, Nathan, for our listeners who want to support the work of World Relief in Chicago land, if they want to give financially, if they want to volunteer, 
Tell us where to go and what to do. Yeah. So the easiest way to find out information about how to get connected is to go to worldrelief.org slash Chicagoland. And there's a page right there that um, talks about helping our Afghan allies, and it will walk you through everything you need to, to know about how to partner. Um, additionally, you can always call our offices or um, connect with us that way as well. Awesome. Again, that's worldrelief.org slash Chicagoland. That's worldrelief.org slash Chicagoland. Here at The Common Good, we really believe strongly, again, in what World Relief does, both with churches, individuals. So we would highly encourage you to go to worldrelief.org slash Chicagoland. Again, Nathan White is the Director of External Engagement at World Relief Chicagoland. Nathan, it is great to meet you. Thanks for all that you guys are doing. And thanks for spending some time with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on today. Absolutely our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. I'm Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm. We're so grateful that you've joined us today. We have talked quite a bit on the show about the new Texas abortion law. That's right. Do you want to quickly explain that for people who may not be familiar with it at this point? Yeah, the state of Texas said we want to have the most restrictive abortion law that is on the books. And uh, what they did was, uh, you know, I'm going to kind of butcher this a little bit, but basically they've made uh, abortion illegal after six weeks, um, which is the vast majority of the time after six weeks that abortions happen. And the caveat of the law is that uh, abortion providers, not mothers, but abortion providers, other people who have um, kind of made the abortion possible can be sued by private citizens yeah. or other people. And that's kind of how they get around it. Now, the federal government has said they're they're about to come at Texas like this is going to be a fight. Uh, but, you know, it is re- it is. um you know, the abortion law, the abortion debate has always been simmering there. But with things like this, really pour gasoline on it. And so on Twitter, Instagram, on the yes. news, you're seeing lots of yay, lots of nay yes. uh, in their very specific locales. Right. And that's why I think this article we're about to discuss is mm-hmm. so interesting, not uh, partially because of who wrote it, but the locale that it was written for. Yeah. So Karen Swallow Pryor wrote an article. Friend of the show. Friend of the show. That's right. She's been on the show several times. Karen is a professor at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. She's a columnist at Religion News Service. She's the author of a book called On Reading Well. And she has written actually a lot of other books as well. This article at uh, the New York Times, right? Her op-ed called Texas Abortion Law Should Force America to Change Its Ways. And we'll talk about the article, but I think part of what Brian was just saying is it's very bold for Karen to write this yes. for the New York Times. Yes. And if you follow this article on Twitter, I wouldn't suggest you do because people <laughs> responded with some vitriol and some hate. But I appreciate Karen's boldness. And one of the things that she says, I mean, from the jump, she says, abortion is a failure for every woman and her unborn child, a failure of love, justice and mercy. Texas's new abortion law is far from perfect, but I hope it can move us closer to these ideals. Now, some of the pushback of the law from Christians has been that they think it's putting too much power in the hands of local citizens. And they Mm -hmm. think people are going to go on like witch hunts in and of a sense. That was a terrible use of that phrase. But (laughs) they're going to go, you know, look for women having abortions and ultimately like attack them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's not what the law is for, at least as far as we understand it. Of course, they're afraid the law in the wrong people's hands will, you know, cause problem. But Karen just says from the start, 
no, this uh, this law, she doesn't necessarily say this law is a perfect law. No, in fact, she says later kind of the vigilante kind of what you described mm-hmm. uh, is she says deputize, deputizing private citizens to enforce the ban is certainly fraught with risk. So she kind of goes as to why that's not good. But she says even if it's not a perfect law, uh, it's a move in the right direction. And that's what's kind of getting some people fired up. And, you know, she says important stuff. She says, as a pro-life Christian, I believe that each of our individual origins are in the moment of conception. That's when my life and your life began, not in some abstract, ethereal way. But for the real, all the very particular DNA, chromosomes, eye color, hair texture, and toes of you. And she's going to continue to go. But I, Aubrey, I think you bring up an important point that Karen, from the beginning of this article, says, I'm unashamedly pro-life. Mm-hmm. And I want to see abortion, the number of abortions dramatically decrease. Yeah. And that that is the goal here. And to write that in the New York Times. Yes. I mean, it's one thing to write that in Christianity Today. Still big or where, you know, even religion news service Mm -hmm, where mm -hmm. she writes. Now, that would get some pushback there, but you're still playing to a, uh, you know, a fairly a a majority pro-life audience. I think so. I think so. But you go to The New York Times and like you said, if you go online and read the comments, if you go to Karen's Twitter page and read some of the stuff she has gotten, it makes you wonder, like if Karen was on right now, I'd say I'd want to hear her answer as to why would you put yourself out there? Mm. Like, why do that? Why go into the arena like that? And I putting words in her mouth, I would have to say to spark the debate. Yeah. To interesting. give the reasons for pro-life. Like, if we're going to believe that a lot of the people reading the New York Times are going to be pro-choice, and my guess is the word would be because they need to hear the other side. Mm-hmm. They need to hear from a rational person, mm-hmm. you know, not not somebody screaming on the corner yeah. or this, episode, but, but an author an academic yes. going, hey, no, I, I too am a pro-life Christian, and here's why. Yeah, I mean, she goes on to quote that one in five pregnancies is aborted. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just some tragic stuff in here. And I think if you were pro-choice and you read this, you could vehemently disagree, but you can't say she's crazy. Right. You'd have to take her claims seriously. And she doesn't. I mean, it's interesting to me. She doesn't quote scripture. She doesn't really get on a high horse. But she says flat out, like, this is what we believe and we have to do better in mm-hmm. this country. What I really appreciate that Karen asks is this. The law demands that we ask, what does it really mean to offer aid to someone to whom abortion seems the best option? Mm-hmm. It sa- she says it takes a village to make abortion seem like the best choice. That means it takes a village. I'm I'm requoting her, but or changing her words a little bit. It takes a village to help abortion seem like the worst choice. Right. And um, you know, going back to the conversation we had earlier in the show today about selective empathy, I do think this is an area where Christians who are pro life have got to be considerate of women who feel like abortion is the best option mm-hmm. or the only option. We have to be empathetic. We have to put ourselves in their shoes. We have to um, come with love and compassion and grace so that we can then perhaps offer care and hope and another alternative. But if we go in there judgmental and I can't believe that's not going to be helpful Mm -hmm. and that's not going to make a change at the end of the day. Yeah. Karen says we need to be people who act, not transact for mercy, justice and love. Mm -hmm. And love isn't love that doesn't act. As history has shown again and again, we sometimes need the law to teach us to love. Sometimes it takes a law to remind us that fellow human beings are not ours to own, harm, or kill. Love is a higher law, but it is still a law, and this is where we must begin. Mm. And so Karen very much sees this as, okay, the laws are going to be needed 
in order to protect the most vulnerable. And I think the point is well taken. She says about people who are like, well, then what are you going to do for the this? You and I have said this over and over again over the last couple of weeks. This law is a call to the church yeah. not to celebrate. You can celebrate, but but to say, OK, how are we going to step in and foster and adopt children? Yes. How are we going to help birth moms? Mm-hmm. How are we going to uh, push forward the hard conversations about health care and poverty, yes. the things that we know lead to abortion. Yes. Abortions are very infrequently things of convenience. Right. They're often things of poverty, health care. Right. And so where does the church step in now? So I, like Karen, am going, uh, you've heard me say this, I cheer this law as, mm-hmm. as it, it's not infallible. Right. It's got problems with right. it. Uh, and there's going to be other tests to this law and other Certainly. things. I want to cheer this on because I think babies will be saved. Yeah. But then I also want to say, but now it's the time for the Christ follower to step in and ask the hard questions. A lot of us aren't willing to ask questions about yeah. uh, about health care and poverty that we know will help mm. save babies and not allow them to That's be good, aborted. And, but we have to have those conversations as well. Now's the time for the church to rise up. Right. And it's that it's the saying we've said on the show that you've heard a million times, but it. It's a saying because it's true. If we're going to be pro-life, we have to be pro-life from womb to tomb. And that means caring for the mothers in this situation who so often feel desperate like they don't have any other choices. How can we as a Christian community come around them? I also think this is a good plug. Next week, we'll be here with the Preborn folks, which is a ministry and organization that provides ultrasound machines for abortion clinics Mm -hmm. so that moms who walk into abortion clinics that first day can hear their baby's heartbeat and Mm. what a difference that makes. So you'll be want to join us again next week. We'll be there two days, Wednesday and Thursday with the preborn folks hearing all about what God is doing through them. Stick around. We're going to be talking about political civility in an era of division. You're listening to the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. I'm Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we're so glad to have you with us. All right, Brian. Politics. Let's do it. Division. Unity. (laughs) (laughs) It's, you know, it's a hot button topic. Everything on one side of the political spectrum to the other. And, um, you know, there was a really interesting story at ABCnews.com. A group of politicians, two in particular, who are on different sides of the coin, Democrat and Republican, came together at a Minnesota State Fair to intentionally model political civility. There's pictures of them milking cows together (laughs) and eating a meal together. But what was interesting is they, Phillips and Johnson, they, um, uh, Dean Phillips from Minnesota and Representative Dusty Johnson of South Dakota came together, even though they have very sharp differences on government spending, health care, abortion, etc. They wanted to model civility and decency mm. because they said America has just the political discourse has been at its worst. Here's a quote from Johnson. The people who are loudest really want us to be divided. Mm. I think most members are good people who want to find common ground, but man alive, the loudest ones, they get a disproportionate amount of the attention. And it's a really cool story because they talk about how they uh, got together to have a discussion rather than a a debate. And they used prompts like healthcare and polarization, those words, to listen to personal stories, listen to personal perspectives instead of debating or challenging one another. And the funny part is 
the conversation never once mentioned former President Donald Trump or current President Joe Biden Mm. by name. Mm -hmm. And they say this, if you pose questions about what's really concerning people in their lives and their communities, they actually don't go right away to the politicians. Um, So their goal really is not necessarily even to agree, but to find, as we've talked about on the show several times today, a greater empathy, a greater appreciation of one another. I thought this was a really, really Mm. interesting story, Brian. What do you think just hearing that? I think people want to uh, be not be united. I don't think people want to have all this division and that that's not the natural tendency. I think you're right. I think there are some systems set up within our culture Uh, That pour gasoline on that fire, namely um, cable news, social media, Mm -hmm. other things I think that are uh, they make money off of division and it it makes us feel like there's this big divide. And as we've seen in recent years, the best way to get elected is to be on the polls, to be uh, way out there. And that leads towards divided government. It doesn't do. Let's put it this way. It doesn't do much political good for a Republican or a Democrat to reach across the aisle. Uh, and for and their political govern. career. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. To actually govern. And it doesn't do much good. And so uh, but I don't think they're wrong here. I think I mean, Aubrey, you know, the people you talk to, people aren't like, man, I really want to hate people. Right. I really want right. to disunite. I want I want disunity in our country. Right. I want this. But but so much of it is fed to us that way that we're like, oh, everyone's everyone's not united. And I, I shouldn't be either. I should be mad at you. And yes. And so when you've got people who are we're usually used to stoking the fire instead of being the ones who are trying to kind of turn down the fire, I think it's good. And let's just make the leap. This is what the church should be doing. This That's is exactly the role of the right. church. It's interesting. Um, Michael, who was a liberal participant in this, this is just another person part of this conversation. He said, some people that I talked to wonder if we could go to civil war Mm-hmm. If we don't stop the way we're doing our politics right now and find a better way. And I think there's some truth to that. I think that that phrase sounds really dramatic. Yeah. But I think none of us watching America right now would be surprised if there was maybe not a civil war, but certainly a civil split. Yeah. And just greater tension. Like, yeah. It feels like it doesn't feel like the trajectory of our culture is is towards calming down and towards certainly unity not. and yeah. towards this. It feels like, in fact, it's spiraling the other direction. Yeah. So will it end? I'm still the type that's like, civil war? I don't know. Yeah, it seems but, a little extreme. But is it? Like, right. It, like, if you had told me 10 years ago, some of the stuff we're seeing now would mm-hmm. be going on. So I don't want to be an alarmist. But if here's my point. If it even causes us a second to pause and go, is it possible? Then things are bad. Things are bad if we're actually considering that that might be a reality one mm-hmm. day in the future. Okay, Brian, you know, I bring this up because I had a few interesting conversations over the past month or so with, you know, just different people here and there. And a couple of things stood out to me. And it seems to me that there are many, many Christians who just have a hard time seeing that someone could be on the opposite side of the Mm -hmm. political spectrum Mm -hmm. and still be a Christian. Yes. And so, for example, um, I was asked recently, like, how could a Christian be a Democrat and still be a Christian? The assumption there was that all Christians are Republican. Mm -hmm. All Christians should be Republican. Another conversation I had with someone, how could... Um, Christians allow refugees to come into this country. Well, we just spoke with uh, World Relief, Nathan White right. from World Relief, who really World Relief and, and us here at the Common Good feel like it's part of our Christian duty 
to help refugees come into the country. The point that I'm making is we are on such opposite side of some of these issues that yeah. we can't even believe well-meaning, well-meaning Christians might be on the other side. Yep. And so how do you move from there, like such, such polar opposites that you think the other person can't even be a faithful Christian, mm-hmm. to civility? Yeah, $64,000 question, yeah. right? here. I think part of it is this. Do I believe Jesus' prayer and words in John 17 mm. are a guiding principle? Uh, to, to ask it another way, that's where Jesus prays for the unity of yes. his church. Good, Brian. Do I value unity in that to that degree that I will be willing to build bridges with you, that I'll be willing to talk to you, that I will be willing? Think about people in your family, right? People that you love who maybe you disagree with over politics yeah. or ma- vaccines yeah. or your favorite baseball team, whatever else it might be. Hopefully you're not allowing those things to, to sever relationship. Mm. It might strain relationship, certainly, but hopefully you're not allowing that to sever relationship, but instead you're, you're able to go, no, but at the end of the day, I love this person. Yeah. I'm committed to this yeah. person. I'm whatever. I think if we in our churches began viewing one another this that way, you know what? In the end, that's my brother or my sister in Christ. Yeah. So I might vehemently disagree about politics and about masks and vaccines and about whatever else. Name the hot button topic. Right. But that's not I'm not going to allow that to define my relationship with them. Even if I need to put up the boundary of like, hey, listen, uh, I can't talk to you about masks anymore. Yeah. I just don't want to. We just to. can't go there. And quite frankly, if you tell me, nope, I want to talk about masks all the time, then I'll probably tell you I don't want to see you. I still love you. Yeah. But I don't want to see you. But if if we don't allow these things to define our relationships and what binds us, but instead allow Jesus to define us and uh, what binds us, I think then we can start having the unity of John 17, mm, right? Jesus is praying brain. for people who are tax collectors yes. and zealots yes. and fishermen. They hated each other. What was it that then made them brothers? It was it was their common lordship of Jesus. That's right. And so if we can't get to that point, Aubrey, then the church will look no different than society. The mm. church will look as fractured as the mm. culture around us. But if we can get to the point that says what's more important to me is our common devotion to Jesus, yeah. then we're going to be okay. Yeah, I love that, Brian. That's such a good word for the church right now. Just coming back to the article briefly, again, these two politicians on different sides of the political spectrum coming together to have a civil conversation. What they were talking about is what you're saying, that, um, you know, there are family members that don't see their cousins, brothers that aren't talking to brothers, husbands who aren't talking to wives because their political differences have been so amplified this year of all years. And if that's happening in the church, I mean, we understand mm-hmm. that that stuff might happen in the world, but if that's happening in the church, that has to be a warning sign that's for right. all of us that I think we've made our politics into a God and we need to repent of that. And we need to go back to putting people relationship. And of course the Lordship of Jesus Christ first and remember whose kingdom we actually belong to. Mm-hmm. And if right now we're we're existing for a kingdom that's causing us not to talk to family members yeah. because we disagree about something as uh, like masks, you know, that should be a warning sign yeah. for all of us that yeah. things need to change. And like you said, Brian, for the unity of the church, this is something that Jesus prayed for. I'm guessing this is something that Jesus still prays for, that mm. the Holy Spirit intercedes for. So we have to be sensitive Amen. to that. Well, coming up next, we're joined by Donardo Ramos, the executive director of Rahab's Daughters. He'll be talking about a very cool event, their annual gala, which is coming up on October 2nd. 
You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. And Aubrey and I are excited to be joined by Donardo Ramos. He's the executive director of an organization called Rahab's Daughters. Donardo, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you, Brian? I am doing great. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, uh, before we talk uh, about all the things we want to discuss with you, why don't you just tell us about Rahab's Daughters? What is this ministry that you are the executive director of? Well, Rehab's Daughters is an organization that was founded by a survivor herself, Sharmella. Um, and it is an organization that goes out to rescue victims of human trafficking, um, sex victims of human trafficking. And it's very unique in the way that it is able to not only rescue the mother, but it allows the mother, if she has children, to bring her children alongside her. Mm, that is so amazing, Donardo. We love hearing about all that Rahab's Daughters is doing. Do you have any particular stories you can share about how God has transformed lives through this ministry? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, one particular way where God has really moved or did move was the reconnection of a daughter and father. Um, there was one particular survivor who had a child by the trafficker and the father who was indeed a minister um, was not pleased with any of this. And because she did not give up the lifestyle, because so many people don't understand that it's not so easy to just stop once they have been a part of this industry. Um, and so she and her baby came with us um, and we worked with them. We mentored them. Um, we also mediated conversations between she and her family. Um, the long and short of it is God really intervened and stepped in. He touched the heart, softened the heart of her parents. She was allowed to come back home. Um, and so now she and her daughter are in the home um, of her parents, the baby's grandparents. And from our last report, this grandbaby is enjoying um, her mm. grandparents the way grandchildren should. Oh, that's wonderful. Now, Donardo, you talk about human trafficking and, and it's something that we hear about often, but a lot of us just don't understand because uh, a lot of people probably think human trafficking, it's, it doesn't happen in the United States, right? This happens on the other side of the globe. Yeah. So, so tell us what is actually happening in the United States with in relationship to human trafficking and how can people recognize uh, the signs of human trafficking? Yeah, absolutely. So it, it, it happens in various ways. Some of the most common ways, um, um, one is a person is recruited. They can be recruited not necessarily by older people, but by their peers. Um, if they are um, of the age of 13, 14, that is not too young to be trafficked. Um, and the peers will, will convince them that, you know, they have an uncle who does great things for them, who connects them with, you know, designer bags and things of that nature. And so if a child, another girl doesn't have those things and she's interested in having a pretty handbag or things like that, she may be convinced to tag along and see what's happening. Um, mm. um, other ways is, you you know, our mobile devices, our computers, they have cameras these days, don't mm. they? Um, yeah. Traffickers have a way of hacking into these cameras and without knowing the young ladies um, and sometimes men are being videoed with without their knowledge. 
And they are contacted by these traffickers and told that, you know, this will be put on the Internet. It will be, uh, you know, shared with their family members, with their parents. And what do most teenagers do? They they become fearful and nervous because they don't believe that someone would believe that they didn't actually participate in this. And Mm. so this is one of the ways that they convince them to do what they want them to do as a way of not sharing this information with the public or with their family. So. Some of the signs are, for an example, if you're out and about, um, is a person is not allowed to go into public alone. Or if they are in the public's view, they're not able to speak for themselves. Someone is always speaking for them. They may have tattoos or some kind of branding on their body, the lower back, the neck, and even on the forearm. Um, they might check into hotels and things like that with um, men who may seem a lot older, um, and they may refer to them as their uncle or their boyfriends. Mm. Um, another way is that they lack official identification, um, such as passports or driving licenses, if they're old enough, state IDs. Um, and they may appear malnourished, as well as having signs of physical injuries and abuse. So many are taken to hospital for um sexually transmitted diseases and and other signs of abuse that they encountered from um the johns if you will um but because they have the story already laid out which is another part the the stories that they say and and how they're communicating may seem scripted or rehearsed um and if you're not used to it or familiar with it you won't know this and so many of them pass through emergency rooms without ever being detected Mm, wow, that is that is really, really helpful information for us to keep our eyes open for what's going on. Thank you for that. You have a really exciting event coming up on October 2nd. Rahab's Daughters is hosting the 2021 annual gala. Can you tell us more about the gala, what people can expect, who will be speaking? What's what's the point? How does it support the ministry? That kind of thing. Absolutely. Well, the gala issues is it's one of our major fundraisers to help us successfully do what we do through the awareness of the community, through educating the community, through our rescue processes, through the rehabilitation, as well as the integration of our survivors back into society. Um, our uh, main keynote speaker will be Detective Joseph Scaramucci out of Texas. Um, And he has done phenomenal work within the human trafficking industry. He is very knowledgeable as to not just um, what we as lay people should look out for and how we can respond, but also how to um, work with law enforcement, how to work with our local officials in in not just noticing it, but combating it. Um, And Obviously, there'll be food. Um, there'll be other types of events, such as uh, stories from uh, certain survivors, either personally or someone will read it for them, depending on the situation, because sometimes they are not in the position where they're willing or able to yet go public um, or to at least be face to face. And it's just going to be a great time to learn about what we've accomplished thus far over the past year and forecast what we are wanting to do in the future. Um, and all of this is really made possible through the proceeds that are raised the evening of our gala. 
You can learn more about the ministry and the gala as well at rahabsdaughters.org. That's rahabsdaughters.org. And Donardo, with like the last minute that we have, if people can't go uh, on that night, uh, but they're really interested in your ministry, what are some ways people can volunteer and support your organization? Absolutely. Just by way of information, we also have a virtual way that they are able to participate if they um, aren't able to get there personally. We are always looking for volunteers, volunteers to be trained for outreach, volunteers. We have 24-7 phone lines, which are manned volunteers for that. Super Bowl is one of the things we do every year, um, and we're always looking to train up volunteers to work the lines in shifts um, over Super Bowl. And and I know we've just completed it in in February, but it does require some training. And this is the perfect time to get their feet wet and to learn exactly how they can best serve within the ministry. Wonderful. Well, Donardo Ramos, he is the executive director of Rahab's Daughters. Uh, You can, again, find out more about the ministry at rahabsdaughters.org. That's rahabsdaughters.org. Donardo, wonderful ministry. Thanks so much for spending time with us and letting us know about Rahab's Daughters. We appreciate it. Appreciate you guys. Thank you so much. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.